0: good evening everybody uh, I, I want to thank as always the show for, for putting up with us over here and their Tom it is allowing us to have these uh, I'll, I'll speak about why I chose this topic in a minute but let me go through the preliminaries and I'm going to start tonight as you see the the, the name of the series is about Poland there we go as, as you can see tonight's uh, sponsor the Friedmans dr. Mars Freeman honor as he said, we of his brother IRA who doesn't want me to say too much about him even though he's one of the jewels of our uh, community. I do want to say that I want to wish the uh, Friedman family um, a great deal of uh Shalema number one of uh, good health and uh, a lot of simcha in the coming year and uh, I just have a good feeling that good stuff is going to be happening to them and uh, in that uh, spirit I thank our sponsors and I uh, offer up a hope of all of us that what I just said will come true so let's get underway. The name of this series, as you see, I call this Pauline, which is what the Jews called it long ago, Poland, opposing Jews in 2018, uh, trying to be friends, but prevented by different versions of a common history, prevented by different versions of a common history. Um, I'm going to have to explain it as I go along, but I think everybody here probably knows that there's a lot of controversy going on right now between the Jews and the Poles. And Poland recently passed a law you not saying anything about the Holocaust. Now they modified it, caused of pressure from Donald Trump and all that sort of business. And uh, this was pushed by the right-wing Polish parties. So extreme right-wing Polish parties. So remember that term, the extreme Polish right-wing, because that's a uh, interesting factor in Polish history. The extreme right-wing and the extreme left-wings are a in and neck in, in everybody's history, okay? including the Jews. We are now in the three weeks and the second base were was destroyed because of the extreme right-wing zealots long ago. Yeah. Uh, that's what the Talmud tells you. <laughs> so um, this will be a factor in what we're talking about as well. Um, as you see, the first lecture tonight is entitled How the Kingdom of Poland Became the Site of the Largest and Freest and Most Important Community in Jewry. So most people when you talk about Poland they think in an undifferentiated way by Eastern Europe and what's doing in Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, they all talk funny and they all look funny and older. But it's not true, of course, right? Any more than to say, you know, the Americans, the Canadians, the Mexicans, all one thing. You know, it's, it's not true. Every group has a very distinct culture. In Eastern Europe, that's really so. Uh, they have a bad history. Well, OK, that's the problem of being in Europe. <laughs> means you got bad history. That's why people came here and elsewhere and left Europe. But uh, they belong in a very rich. Uh, history and the Jews have been part of it for a long time. Uh, the reason I chose this topic is because I'm always looking for something for the three weeks as a tra- tragic nature. As soon as you about the Jews in Eastern Europe, you're automatically invoking tragedy in connection with the Holocaust, obviously. Um, what's really interesting now, I mean, now, is that there are uh, big uh, fights raging. In Eastern Europe, in these countries, most of us don't even know about this, except specialists uh, like uh, my friend over there, and uh, there are whole fights because they don't like the past that they've been assigned. (coughs) Hear what I said? They don't like the past that they've been assigned. And they don't like the fact that how come the Jews' version of their past gets out there and their Holocaust is acknowledged, but what happened to us is not acknowledged. We're not the way it ought to be and uh, different groups within the countries are you know, playing on history themes. It's a land of lies. But you know, I guess every country, is, every country is to some degree a land of lies. Uh, that's why you have such bitter fights now, right now in the United States of America. Because the liberals, what they say is a lie to the right wing, and the right wing people, what they say is a lie to the left wing. That's how they, that's how they look at it. When you, each one makes a speech or a point, the other side thinks it's a lie, so uh, to get a common narrative is not so easy. And do not look for that so easily uh, between Jews on the one hand and your Poles, your Lithuanians, your Latvians, the Estonians, the Belarusians, and all the other business, because they they don't like the history that they've been the the, the the role they've been assigned in history, and they're trying to uh, argue against it. And none of you have an idea what I'm talking about. By the time it's over, I will have an idea of what I'm talking about. At least as far as the Poles are concerned, I hope. Um, so I found this interesting. Uh, as I said, there's a current fight going on with Jews and Poles. It's not a fight that most Jews want to have. Uh, Bibi, as you know, the other day in Israel made old speech. He said, OK, now it's over. Poland uh, withdrew the law. They didn't really. They just said it's a civil penalty instead of a, a criminal penalty. But uh, the state of Israel and the state of Poland actually need each other politically. And so for whatever reason, They say, you know, we we want to put all this baggage in the closet and open it up later. We don't want to deal with this now, which is actually a very interesting kind of a situation. There are other countries in uh, in the Baltic where they have criminalized uh, criticizing the, uh, I think Lithuania, Latvia, some those places. If you say that these people uh, helped Hitler or something like that, or you know, massacred Jews, uh, you could you you could be uh, you could go to jail. I know it sounds weird, but uh, there you have it. And uh, why? What's going on? So I'm only going to focus, as I said before, on the Poles, because Jews and Poles lived together in Poland for centuries. It's part of who we are. We're part of who they were. You know what I said? We're part of who they were. Uh, Particularly, um, they lived together in the fateful and disastrous 20th century, which was a bad century for the Jews, obviously, and a bad century for the Poles. Now the Jews say, "Well, they killed, killed six million Jews. That's Pasha, you know. What did they do to the poles? Did a lot of bad things to the poles. I don't say every pole was a tzaddik. I don't say every Jew was a tzaddik. But they went through terrible times, as they see it, because to just put in simple terms, you had World War I, and you had World War II, and then you had Stalin and the communists afterwards. It's not so simple, okay? So uh, the 20th century has been a bad century, uh, by and large, for both groups. Certainly, the first half, first two thirds of the 20th century." And uh, now they're trying to get past it. Throughout these centuries, and even during the Holocaust, in my opinion, there have always been two sides of the poles: the Yatzer, Tobin and the say it again. For hundreds of years, you study the record, at least when I study the record, you see a Yeitzzer Tobin Yetaharo. The, the question for Jewish history is this: Which Yeitzzer dominated events in which century, in which era, in Poland? Um, and you know me, to do this right, you got to go to the beginning. So, more or less anyway. So here we go. Let's start with Poland. It actually starts, not with Poland, but with the greatest empire in Europe in the 14th century. What was the greatest empire in Europe in the 14th century? Lithuania. <laughs> You're laughing because we only know Lithuania is a small country. Look how big it was. That's Lithuania. This, part, not, this is Poland. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania, once upon a time, was a gigantic place. Look, from the Baltic Sea almost to the Black Sea. It's amazing. Who would ever think? You know, the Lithuanians today are glad they have their Dalai Almas. Look, 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 look what they were once, okay? And Poland's smaller, Crack The Poles are smaller than Lithuanians, as you can see. So, um, way back in the 1300s, uh, the Agelio of Lithuania, the prince, the duke of Lithuania, who was a pagan, Ovid of married Queen Jadwiga of, uh, of Poland, and founded a dynasty of kings, a long-lasting dynasty of, of kings of Poland and Lithuania. Notice their children, he, it's like Ferdinand and Isabella was in Spain, get it? He was the grand Duke of Lithuania, that big country. She was the queen of the small country. And their children, therefore, were heirs to a joint throne, but mind you, two separate countries. So if you know anything about Spain, Remember the Catalans not long ago tried to make their own country and get independence? That didn't exactly work out. Because their time, it goes like this. Just because Ferdinand them, is about, they made it should be one country. Correct? Aragon should be Aragon, and, and Castile should be Castile. So look how it works over here. In America, we don't even remember what happened last year. You couldn't tell me who was the governor of Maryland in the 1950s. And they can tell you who was the king in the 1550s. You see? So... Um, it's just, uh, that's how history works in, the, in that part of the world. Uh, each kingdom kept its own institutions and uh, governments, and that's why it was a marriage of the century. Okay? This was the start of a gigantic state, even though the state encompassed two sovereignties. So this area was what we call, I'll use the term kingdom of Poland, but it's really the Poland and Lithuania, you know what I mean? So uh, like Austria and Hungary again, like Castile and Aragon. There was two countries adjacent to each other, most of the time they got along. Sometimes they didn't get along. They fought each other else, even though they had the same sovereign uh, long ago. And uh, generally speaking, though, it created a zone of internal peace and economic prosperity. Because when you have one general government over one area, and look at all the raw materials you've got in Eastern Europe the endless forests, the endless rivers, the uh, mines of uh, you know, precious metals, uh, you know, all the good karka, uh, you know, the, 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 the soil, the, t- you know, the, the, the topsoil, and all that business. Just amazing amount of uh, raw materials, so you can have prosperity, and and they did. That's why the Jews went there. That's why the Jews went there. So I know we always think of Poland like in a black and white movie, you know, but but it wasn't. Um, Their descendants ruled, meaning the Jagellonian dynasty, ruled the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania for 200 years. After 200 years, this dynasty died out because they had no kids. At that point, the nobles of Poland and the nobles of Lithuania got together and they hammered out, they negotiated what was called the Union of Lublin in 1569 by which both lands remained united but autonomous. So even though that we don't have exactly the same king anymore from the dynasty, but we're all going to re- remain what they call a commonwealth, you know? Again, like Austria-Hungary or something like that. For the next two centuries, so from the 1560s to the 1760s, um, the official name of the country was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the res publica serenissima. Uh, anyway, there's the Union of Lublin, a famous uh, episode in, in, in Polish history. And it meant that uh, in Eastern Europe, you could just got one big, large area, uh, more or less the same, uh, you know, local variation. But I mean, it's, it's like one big empire. And uh, they're going to be fairly well off, okay? Fairly powerful. One more point before we get to the Jews. A very important trend that developed during these centuries, in other words, the 1300s, the 1400s, 1500s, of the Agelian kings was the steady accumulation of power by the nobles. That's what—that was the big problem in Poland. They sucked up all the power. Um, in other words. We're Americans, so we're not used to this, but in Europe, it's a different reality. In most countries in the world, it's a different reality. There's a long tradition, not today, but long ago, for a long time, of an aristocracy. A titled aristocracy maybe associated with land ownership, not necessarily, various ways, and the laws are different for these guys. So there's a privilege in the law. That's the way it was almost everywhere in Europe, and that's why people ran away to this country. That's the reason. Okay, long ago. And um, they started a republic here, as you all know. What we have in America is rich and poor. But listen to the difference. If I'm rich and then tomorrow I'm poor, it doesn't mean the fact that I was rich before. It doesn't mean anything. Okay, If you're the grandchild of a rich person, but now you're poor, it doesn't help. In in, in European countries, if you're the grandchild of a noble, even though you lost your money, all the rest of it, you still enjoy these special privileges in society. For example. You're eligible for a government job, um, the laws treat you better, uh, there are different rules of evidence, um, you know, just a whole bunch of different things. You can't be an officer in the army unless you're an, an, a nobleman. It's not fair, it's what they consider fair. And they consider that the laws should reflect different fundamental classes of society, and there you have it. Now, in the case of most of your European countries, The nobles always tried to grab as much power as they could, naturally. The cities fought back, Uh, the church wanted a piece of the action, you know, that sort of business. In Poland, it so happened that the nobles were very successful in their project, and they grabbed all the power. Um, As I said before, Americans aren't used to this. Very famous episode, because was an American, and uh, World War I broke out. He happened to be living in London, and the world was crazy, and Belgium was starving. And Herbert Hoover, was a private American, just organized on his own a whole international network to, to feed the Belgians. Which means, yeah, you can look it up. He, uh, he, he, he raised money. He bought ships. He, tra- he transported the, the grain from America. Uh, he had to negotiate with the Germans. He had to negotiate with the British. He had to get letters through the blockade. He had to deal internationally with all the governments. He had to organize nutritionists to figure out how to feed the Belgian people. The children should get it. It's an incredible story. And the British were so impressed with him, even though they didn't like him, they said, if you'll join our side, we'll make you a member of the cabinet, we'll make you a Duke. You know, administer of munitions, because when they had big trouble with the munitions, you know I could organize anything. You're amazing. And he said, I would never give up being an American citizen. That's higher than a Duke. You understand? Like forget it. That's an American sensibility. A European would say, I guess, are you crazy? You understand? You, you follow? It's, it's, it's a different... So for us in America, it's hard to connect with this. But that's how one went over there. And in Poland and Lithuania, it's a lot of people that fall in the category of the nobility, Not like in other countries, the 10%. So imagine if you have a country of 5 million people, half a million people are nobles. That's a lot of people which means you could have somebody shining the shoes, a noble blood, just happens to find himself in that situation, and he's treated by the law different than someone else. So the peasantry don't count. The city dwellers often didn't count, um, except in narrow circumstances. Uh, you know, to just get used to it. This was a big problem in Poland. But it was very good for the Jews. <laughs> That's the point. It was very good for the Jews. So we begin the screwball history of the Jews and the Poles. Um, now... The nobility, the nobles, were a mass of little guys, they called the schlachta, and a few biggies called the magnates. And, uh, you know, the magnates own areas, farms as big as Rhode Island, or bigger. I mean it, bigger. And uh, the little guys might own a little, you know, control a little piece of land. There are lots of them, though, lots of them. And uh, if we can get the movies up that I want to, you'll see the example I'm talking about. Slowly but surely in Poland, the schlachta, the nobility, got more and more power until it was formalized, in the nobles' republic, as they called it, in the 1500s and onwards, only nobles could own land, They could only only nobles can hold office, they're free of taxes, so go up there, get in tag. And uh, they weren't going to get rid of all their privileges, you understand? They weren't going to do it. Um, many were were uh, small fry, but not in their little Dalen So, If a guy owns, if he's a nobleman, owns the territory of a little, this, this is my kingdom. You know, your home is your castle, as they used to say. Uh, and that was the reality of Poland. The magnates on the other hand, rapists, you know, I told you they have gigantic uh, holdings, some of them. You know, the Potockis, and this and that, you the they do it, There was huge. This is the weird reality in which the Jews will find themselves. The kings of Poland, therefore, were much less powerful. Uh, it's not so easy to be a king of Poland. They had some famous ones, but every one of them had a hard time uh, trying to deal with the nobles and uh, was, was pretty weak as it goes because you couldn't raise a lot of money and get a big army because the nobles don't want you to have an army. And uh, I would about the fact you have to fight the foreigners, you have to keep law and order in there, like that. It'll go, it'll go, you know, it will manage. But uh, the king shouldn't get too powerful. God forbid, after the Hegelians died, it shouldn't be that a father is followed by a son, because then they might really get too powerful. So what I'm trying to describe in general is that what happened in Poland is the opposite of what happened in the rest of Europe. And the rest of Europe in these centuries, going back long ago, little by little, countries formed. And the way they formed it is somebody called a king or a prince or something like that got more and more money and a lot of power. And then got a bigger army, and pretty soon, you know it, he had, he's the king of France. Uh, there was a time when the king of France was not the king of France, but then things changed, and he was the king of France. And he makes the laws, and he makes the this, and the army's under him, and the nobles better listen. You know, it's never exactly a dictatorship, but it's close to it. Um, that didn't happen in Poland. That's the point of when it get across. That did not happen. So basically, if you were a nobleman, Poland was a wonderful and great place. If you were not a nobleman, it was a lot more complicated. Okay, it's a lot more complicated. Under this Republic of Nobles, the main action took place at the parliament of the diets, as they call them, the same in Polish. So the nobles say, "We'll run what's going on in this area, and we don't need the king and the other people to tell us. Uh, you know, we we, we can do it just fine ourselves." These diets were elected by local little dietines. So basically, this small area to get together and. Elect a, a, a tiny parliament, they send delegates to a higher parliament, they finally get some delegates mm-hmm. to the central parliament. Um, so the king is just, a, he won't say he's not a figurehead, but he was not really uh, so powerful. And um, anyhow, only the nobles can vote. Now, the Jews of Poland who move into Poland copied this system. That's the reason I'm telling you all this. The Jews copied this system. You've heard of the Vada It's nothing but the system that I just told you, adapted for Jews. Instead of calling it a diet or the same, they call it a vod. The local vods elected delegates in the national vod, paralleling the goyim. So um, maybe you've heard some of you have heard that in Poland they had a central council sort of of all the Jewish communities. Imagine if you had that in America. I mean, for real, not the federations, which is a joke. I mean, for real, uh, then it would be just an interesting situation. Um, they could pass tarkanas, they could pass laws. Uh, it's never clear exactly how much power they had at one time or another, but it looked impressive at least. It's like the Jewish parliament. Uh, the Vod of the entire Polish Commonwealth was called the Vada Abarotas, the four parts of Poland. In other words, the Jews tried to create a system of coercive autonomy to the degree possible. That's what Jews do, in the old days anyway, the old autonomous coercive uh, the, the uh, They figured the Polish nobles would understand, and the Polish nobles did understand. They said, We got one, so they kind of, the Jews have one. I mean, you know, not that they get in our way. If they do that, it won't work. But if they don't get in our way and they want to just run Jewish things, regular Jewish marriage, Jewish divorce, Jewish jails, and all that kind of business, so let them do it. That's how they do. So the Jewish equivalent of the nobles of the Schlachter were we don't have an actual aristocracy in Judaism, the rich. Okay? And they the ichas. Get it? So in Poland and Eastern Europe, especially, if somebody was poor but the grandfather was somebody, you know. I am something called the Chasidim benon shal Kadashim. You know, I'm the great grandson of such a Rebbe. And America will say, and, you know. <laughs> but in, in but in Europe, they'll say I oh, guess you could say the head of the line, you see? Okay? Um, so the Jewish equivalent of Stochter with the rich. However, since Polish Ashkenazic Jewry uh, brought with them strong traditions of scholarship and Hashiva Torah, because as we'll see in a minute, the Jews who came to Poland came there from somewhere. Where they come from? And the answer is is Ashkenaz. They started out in France, then they were kicked out of there and moved to Germany, and then they were kicked out of there and moved to Poland. So the Jews who are moving to Poland, the most important elements anyway, come with a long tradition, going back to Rashi and people like that. And in that culture, one of the equivalents of money is learning. One of the equivalents of money. It's like that, you know, but there you have it. Now, uh, therefore, the big rabbis were also considered part of the nobility, the big rabbis. Uh, just like the high Catholic uh, churchmen were part of the Polish nobility and played a role in the diets. Just as the diets had to run on the consensus, so did the vods. And therefore, it's just interesting to see the Polish Jews Polonized, Polish- as the word goes, to some degree or another. Uh, now, in all this crazy talk I'm talking about, Poland actually had a renaissance. You had Copernicus and people like that running around. In the 1500s, Poland had universities. If I remember correctly, way, way, way back, there were universities in Poland before there were universities in Germany. Believe it or not, place like Krakow, place like it's not what you think. Okay, people saying in a Poland is like a backward country, all the rest of it. It's not exactly true. They have a very long Western culture, um, Latin, and all the rest of it. Now the question, of course, is like this: I was going to show you Copernicus, you know, who was Polish, right? In the 1500s. Uh, it's, it's not like he had to go you know, somewhere else to learn uh, math and astronomy. You see? Now, um, how do the Jews fit in all this? That's the question we're interested in. How do Jews fit in all this? As I just told you, by the year 1500 or so, the Ashkenazi Jews had been kicked out of everywhere else in Europe. Uh, they started out in France, and they spread a little bit in England, then they were kicked out of England in 1290, kicked out of France, I mean literally kicked out of France in the 1300s. And then they were in Germany, what they call the Holy Roman Empire. Over the course of the 12, 13, and 1400s, uh, I've said this many times, the Jews were de facto kicked out of Germany because you either had a, a pogrom in this area and they would just kill everybody, you know, some crazy thing happened, or you'd have b- them being expelled legally by some prince, or they'd think there was some kind of blood libel situation and kill them or kick them out of that, or, you know, there's competition with the local uh, businessmen and they. Kill them or kick them out over that, or you have some kind of a plague, and so by the, if I had a, one of these interactive maps, you'd see a map of German states in the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, and you see you know flash here, flash there, flash there, flash there. It's always something bad for the Jews, and what it means de facto is that by the time you get to 1500 or so, uh, more than 95 percent of Germany was uh, no Jews, more than 95 percent of Germany, more than 95 percent of Germany. Um, because in each place, the Jews had been expelled or killed. And uh, that's how it went. So where'd they go? Uh, so some hung, hung around. Some German Jews they just continued to live there and took, took all the garbage. But a lot of people saw, I guess, the heck with this. I'm moving to Poland. Moving to the next country over, which was a big country, as you just saw, and was prosperous. And most important, they let the Jews in. Most of the countries in Europe, by 1,500, I'll say this again, most of the countries in Europe, 1500s, had had it up to here with the Jews. The second half of the Middle Ages in Jewish history is characterized by the expulsion of Jews from Europe. Like I said before, you can do the years. In 1290 England, and 1350-something in France, and as we all know, 1492 in uh, Spain, and Germany, I just told you, over here. And the Dutch never let them in the first place. The Scandinavians never let them in the first place. The Russians never let him in the first place. Hungary kicked him out also in the 1400s. You can go line by line. And uh, same thing in Italy. It was not fun. So if you want to be very technical, by the time you get to 1500, there's a few. 1500 or 1510. There's a few in the German states. There's a few, few, few in in the Italian states. That's about it. There are none in Spain and Portugal. There are none in France and England. right? None in and Northern Europe. What else he got left? Not in Switzerland. The Swiss kicked him out in the 1300s. So you go like that, it's Poland. So first of all, the fact they let him in with no quota, <laughs> speaking of current politics, is remarkable. And second of all, uh, the Jews came there, found their way to make a living, and they fit into the economy. And so uh, by the time you get over here to the 1500s, you can say Jewish history really starts a significant way in Poland. So now it's the year 2018. So let's say the last 500 and some years—that's a long time. Uh, by the 1500s, I just told you, who were the real bosses in Poland? The nobles and the magnates were the ones who counted. Nobody else. So whatever the urban dwellers thought of a Jewish influx—and I'm sure they disliked it—I mean, we know. Uh, you know, people in, in Krakow and, and you know, and Lublin, these kind of places—they didn't like these new people showing up and being competitors and quote-unquote, opening up to grocery store and several, I mean, the equivalent of that, they don't count. The, the, the king, who's a noble himself, and the nobles count. Uh, their opinion counted for nothing. And the Jews were able to make the case that they can be of economic utility to the nobles, and they were. And that's what happened the next 400 years. Okay, that, that, that's how it worked. Uh, in Poland, these nobles, as I said before, were like little kings in their own domain especially the big ones and the magnates. And if they don't pay much taxes, all the rest of so it, basically your attitude is, this farm of mine or this uh, 20 miles of mine is my kingdom. So I'm going to run it in the best possible mercantilistic way to make money out of it. And the, the Polish nobles weren't, were intelligent people, but they're not going to go and do manual labor. And so what they did was they allowed into the country different ethnicities that have a history of um, economic networking. Um, I always say it like this if you look around today, there are certain ethnic groups that just have a tendency for commerce and others that don't. So you see Korean uh, grocery stores, you see Pakistani 7 Elevens. You go around the world, the Chinese are always involved in some kind of business situation. This Chinese colony here, Chinese colony there. You don't really see, as far as I can tell, Argentine uh, you know, uh, 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 commercial networks. Okay, You don't see Um, I don't know, you know, uh, Namibian uh, networks, uh, Swiss, Uh, but you do see Greek, um, Korean, as I said before, Arabs, by the way, Arabs, uh, you know, certain ethnicities, Jews. So if you went back to the 1500s, the ones that came to Poland, you had your French, your Scottish, your Italians, your Greeks. Armenians and Jews. I think that's it. These are just people, that, Germans too. They're coming there and one helps the other like they do and they set up little networks, uh, informal, informal, and they you know, make themselves uh, at home in the business climate. So, as far as the Polish nobles are concerned, it goes like this I'm a nobleman. I have a big uh, uh, estate. I want to turn it into uh, cash. How do I do that? So, maybe a Frenchman or a German will come in and say, like this we can chop down all the lumber and sell and move it down the river over here and sell it for some country that needs it for warships and so and here's the here are the numbers okay and what's the profit margin you make 50 and i make 50 and then comes the scottish guy and he's like this i'll tell you what i'll take 40 you see and then comes the armenian he says i'll take 30 and they, by the time it's all over the jew says i'll take 5% or something like that you know, no, that's what it was and nobleman is not dumb and uh, meanwhile, the Jew, first of all, needs anything he can get. Second of all, he, he made a, uh, a niche in the market. You know, Next time, I'll make 6%. You follow? And uh, this happened all over the Polish empire. Uh, and consequently, um, Jews, I'm talking about the more wealthy Jews, uh, created large business situations by making themselves of service to the nobles. you got all this land and uh, a lot of grain and right now the grain market is overstuffed, and not much you can do it. Well, let's turn it to vodka. Okay. Where are you going to sell the vodka? You can sell so and so much locally. It can sell so and so much in this country because I have the cousin Shmeryl Beryl, in Bohemia, and he knows that this will go over well over there. Now the Frenchman's also got a cousin, but the Jew will take a smaller piece, of, you know, and leave a more for the noble. So if you just widen this to be grain, to be whiskey, to be lumber, to be iron. Uh, salt, you know, all this kind of business. It's an economy, isn't it? And so the Jewish people came there, and um, the ones I'm talking about were, were better off. There are others as well, as we'll talk about. And uh, they were of service to the people that counted, and nobody else uh, mattered. Uh, the urban dwellers, the Polish uh, intellectuals, they other didn't like it, but so what? And. Uh, It's exactly what happened. And Poland, this large kingdom that I'm talking about. So when I say Poland, I'm talking about the kingdom of Poland, which no longer exists. The kingdom of Poland that I'm talking about included what you call today Poland and Belarus and Ukraine and Lithuania and Latvia, maybe even Estonia. So that's a big area already. So it doesn't mean the little Poland that you see on the map now. It's the Poland of yesteryear. And to be, again, to be technically exact, it's the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But that's one big area in which you can do business. You understand? And that's what the Jews did. Now, uh, it's interesting, because uh, what really happens by the time it's over is that uh, the Jews come there, and they have to compete against other ethnic groups, and they win the battle. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens about 150 years. Um, it means you constantly competition. After a while, the others just give up. By the time you get to the 1700s, the Jews are controlled, under the control of the nobles. So I always like this story. Yeah, that's already uh, that's I was saying before. Not the this was a very great king of Poland, uh, Stefan Batory. He was a very powerful king, but they, he had a hard time running the country because of the because of the nobles. Let's go to the next one. If we can, we we talked about him. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. You all heard of, uh, if you're my mother's age, you heard of Graf Petotsky. Well, this is Graf Petutsky, right? Petotsky was a giant family. I've told the story many times, but just to give an example of what I'm talking about. In the 1700s, the town of Brody, which he owned, burned down, because Mrs. O'Leary's cow uh, fell over, and everything was made out of wood, and everybody was wiped out. All the merchants were wiped out. I mean, wiped out. And uh, the merchants went to the castle of Count Petotsky, who was the owner of everything over there, I mean, literally. And he gave each guy $100,000 cash. Uh, I'm talking about Jews. There were like seven or eight Jewish businessmen, seven or eight Jews. And why did he give him $100,000? Uh, he wasn't in love with the Jews. Uh, that's an understatement. But he was an intelligent steward of his own economic interests. If I give a drunkard $100,000, what's he going to do with it? He's going to blow it in a weekend, right? If I give a business person $100,000, what are you going to do with it? You're not going to go to a fancy restaurant. What's a business person going to do $100,000? You're going to invest it in something. So these people were merchants. They were tried and true businessmen. They just suffered a reverse because a fire broke out. Okay, They lost everything. When he gave them that kind of money, they went right away to Leipzig in Germany where they had all the big fairs. They had cash in hand. They bought a big ton of merchandise. They had it uh, transported back. It took about two, three years, and the town of Brody was rebuilt on its own, double the size, and the, uh, um, what you call it? the, the, the merchanting, uh what am I thinking of, the trade, the commerce, you won't believe this, they traded with China, and they traded with Connecticut in the 1700s. That's how big they got. So uh, did Petoskey ever ask for his money back? He's a smart guy. He don't have to ask for his money back. He got his money back manifold, because the place grew and developed into a major commercial center. And they had the, the rivers and the wharves and employment and this and that and the other. And he got his off the top and he did it very well. So, this just gives you an insight into the mentality of these nobles who were not dummies at all. We're not dummies at all. Bottom line, as far as the Jews are concerned, the Polish nobles constituted the Yitzhak Tova of Poland during these centuries, even if they did it out of narrow self interest. The fact is that Poland and its empire became the best lawless even if bad things happened time, from time to time by capricious nobles. And that's what the Jews called the polim. Here we find the resting place. Right? It's a play in words, of course. But polim means here we can rest. And uh, because if you know what was going on at that time, in the 1500s, 1600s, in Germany, in Italy, in France even, in other countries, even, even in Turkey, where the Jews had it fairly well, they were treated with extraordinary contempt by the person on the street, you had a, you had a better physical situation living in the kingdom of Poland, even though most people don't realize that. But a couple of years ago, I did hear the Xerus Tachvatod. If you remember the massacres, and if you read the memoirs, the Jews lived at that time, especially the Yevay you uh, Even idealize a little bit, uh, the, the Jews had it good, and particularly because it was a perfect storm, and the perfect storm was that the Polish nobles wanted them there, but they didn't want them to be part of there. Okay, You're not Polish, and so uh, don't interfere in our culture, and you know, keep to yourself. That's what the Jews wanted. <laughs> They're Ashkenazic Jews. <laughs> They're Ashkenazic Jews. What do they want? Their idea of, a, of an ideal situation is to have a, a, a place in the village or the town, which is all Jews, and you don't have anything to do with the Polish uh, business, and on the other hand, you cultivate a very heavy and very intense interiority, and therefore, Poland became a very Jewish uh, kind of a culture uh, area. Uh, culturally and religiously, as I said before, that therefore the Poland and the Ashkenazi Jews hit it off because of this weird uh, storm. But that's what happened. And uh, you know, the guy basically said, you're here, but, you're, but, but you know, you're, you're seen when you're seen, when you're not seen, when you're not seen. And uh, you know, keep your own business. They expected a Jew to read a Jewish book. They didn't expect to read a Polish book, you see? And the Jews wanted it that way, and at least the rabbis and the rich people did, and uh, the, therefore everybody got along great in that particular regard. So though born of illiberal motives, the Jews were freer to practice a full-blooded Yiddishkeit than anywhere else. Isn't that funny? Okay, It's not because of uh, Thomas Jefferson principles, there was none of that, and not because of the rights of man, or everybody's entitled to freedom of their own, because of this weird situation but the Jews says "Like this, who cares? Especially the and Jews of old. You're Bubby's Bubby's Bubby. You know, what I mean, from long ago. Who cares what the reason is? Is it better than you find in another country? There's a famous Ramo, uh, The Ramo who wrote the Shulchan Aruch lived in Krakow, in the Jewish uh, ghetto of Krakow. When I say the Jewish ghetto, I should say the gated community, Kashmir's, You know, the the, the Jewish neighborhood. Okay, and uh, which was such a an, a, a separate part, then on the get, they would write, you know, this is done in, in Kashmir's, not in Krakow. Like in Baltimore, we say, this, this get is, is done in Forest Park. <laughs> you see? You know, the, the, that kind of thing. So uh, he had many students. Uh, he was a famous uh, rabbi in Rosh Hashiva. And uh, one of his students is, a, is a very well known. Uh, got a, uh, was looking for a job and he got a job as a rabbi in Germany somewhere, in South Germany. And he wrote to the Ramot to say, I got a stellar. And the Ramot wrote him back and said, Listen, I'm glad you found a job and I wish you good luck and I like you all the rest of it, but that ain't for me. I'd rather have a dry crust of bread in Poland without that anti-Semitism. Now, Poland was a fairly anti-Semitic country, but it just goes to show you nothing compared to elsewhere. So somebody living in Krakow, which is near the southern border of Poland, would say, Ooh, Baruch Hashem, we don't live in Austria and I mean one of these type of places where it's like toxic. Here it's just regular anti-Semitism, you know, like that. Um, So it's a funny situation, but there you have it. Um, And that's why, let's go to the next picture, all the famous rabbis you've heard of, these are a few, are from Poland in the 1500s, 1600s. People in the back of the Gemara, on the the front of the Shulchan Aruch all the other, here's the Ramon. They're not actual pictures, but they're the pictures that they put out in these books. You know, so that's the Ramon, that's the Taz, I think that's the Ma'ar no, it's not the shop. Yeah, maybe it is. And uh, this is the, supposed to be our show. as the Maral. Meaning, all these names you hear about, uh, each one, you say, who is he? What is he? Well, he lived in Poland in the 1500s, 1600s. Uh, who's the Bach? He's a rabbi in Poland in the 15, 1600s. You 1600s. Know, who's uh, this one? Now? He's a rabbi in Poland 1500s, uh, to the point that the, that the American gets bored. You know, like, what else? To know? Yeah, yeah, but it's true. So how come you have all these rabbis that wrote all these commentaries and books, and this, and that, and the other? Because you could. You see, there wasn't even a big censorship in Germany and Italy by this time. You wanted to write a, uh, publish a book under the aegis of the Catholic Church, it was a bummer. Godol, they uh, they went through all the every word you wrote and they uh, excised things right and left. In Poland, didn't happen that way. it's it's, it, 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 it's really interesting. Now, um, as I said before, there's a famous safer. written have the time of uh, the Cossack massacres of 1649-1650. Yevain Mitzula, in which he said, if you ever came to Poland. Before the Kazakhs showed up, it was a Gan Eden. You had Torah, you had Avodah, you had Mils Every town had yeshivas. He says every town had yeshivas. Every town had at least 30, 40 people that had smicha. Uh, they, the Jews had uh, synagogues. Uh, they had an organized system of chesed. He says, there was a national women's committee that made sure no girl made it to 18 without getting married. You understand? Uh, and. He writes all these sorts of things. And when they had the meetings of the Vada Barakas, or once or twice a year, they would get together like on Pesach time. It was like, uh, you know, I'll make, uh, I'll make myself look silly, but if you're of a certain age, you'll know what I mean. It was like, imagine a from Atlantic City. You understand? Because everybody, all the Jews show up in this, and this, he says, and they were covered malachim, and all the yeshivas came there, and it was like Shaduchim City. And that's where boys switched yeshivas at that time. And they had a whole system with, the whole Poland learned one you know what I mean, they had a coordination. Um, So from that narrow Ashkenazic point of view that we call today yeshivish, because that's what yeshivish is. It's the Ashkenazic-Polish culture. That's what yeshivish is. Uh, It was like a, I won't say a word paradise, but it was a paradise, you understand, In, in that regard. So usually, you don't think of Poland this way, but for, they had it pretty good. Now, um, therefore, under noble protection, the Jews assumed a definite niche in the Polish economy and even in the Polish lifestyle, and they became a part of Poland of yesteryear, I mean, a basic fundamental part of Poland. Um, first, you had uh, the Arendars. Let's go to the next one. This, look at this. Here's an old picture, I think, from the 1400s, if I'm not mistaken, and every different type of Polish person over there, one's a noble, one's a doctor, here's a Jew, a sheep, all right? It's part of the scenery. You, know, you don't have a Polish town without uh, some Jews. You, get it, you like him, you don't like it, it's part of the, part of the scenery. You, I don't think you'd have this in an Italian uh, woodcut. Um, and you had your merchants, of course, um, Jewish merchants. Every time you have a Jewish merchant, you have what you call the Israel, his brother, his son-in-law. No, no, no. They're the agents. They're the brokers. They're the accountants. They're the bookkeepers. They're the schleppers, the kleppers. The ones they send over here. There. Every time somebody set up a business, you're talking about employing a bunch of people. Who are you employing? Who are you employing? You get it? Uh, you're good for nothing, son-in-law. You know that, 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 that all thing. All these typologies come from from that kind of a world. So you had those people. You. Had, uh, the Arenders would be the people who had a, a contract with the nobleman, you know, to, to have a, the, the right to sell the salt over here or to collect the taxes or something like that. Then you have irregular merchants. Uh, these guys are the ones who backstabbed, backstopped the uh, famous German Jews, uh, the Kriegsjuden, the Hofjuden of the 16th and 1700s, which means that, uh, I think we talked about it in the past, uh, one of the interesting features of European life long ago was that a lot of countries, the, the king, the ruler the emperor, had a Jew. Even if didn't allow Jews in there. Why do they have a Jew? To do certain activities from. What is the main activity? Supply the army. What do you mean, supply the army? That requires a certain level of organizational skill. Let's say you have an army like the King of France or we had with 40,000, just for argument's sake, 40,000 men. That's 120,000 meals a day. How do you do that? You got your horses. How much oats is that two or three times a day? You got the army's got to have so and so many buttons, so and so many hats, so and so many cannonballs, so and so many this and that and the other. Who does that, right? They didn't have cars in those days. How do you do that? And the answer is that these are contracted out. And over the course of time, it's really remarkable, especially after the second half of the 1600s, in the 2nd, sixteen and 1700s, you see over and over again what they call these Jews, uh, who are the ones who are the quartermaster generals, if you want to use the term, uh, for the army. Uh, every German prince has like a Jew. Uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, who hates the Jews, the Leopold the I, has a bunch of Jews. Oppenheimer, Wertheimer, and people like that. Um, it was a big battle. Even the Turks have like that. It was a big battle in 1717 between the Austrian army on the one hand. Uh, and the Turkish army, on the other hand, near Belgrade. Prince Eugene was always famous. Each army was supplied by their Jews, famous rabbis. You understand? Uh, you, you're going to laugh. Who was the one supplying the Turkish army in, in the battle? The Mishnah Melech. <laughs> we heard of Rosanas, Because his family, they had the, uh, the monopoly to, to supply the army. How did somebody supply the army? How did he actually come up with uh, 120,000 meals a day? How did he come up with uh, 100,000 bullets with a quarter million bullets and cannonballs and things. How, how do you do that? The answer is what? The person at the top has to organize. How do you organize that sort of thing? Well, here we go. Here comes Poland. I need so and so many meals a day. So that means you need a lot of grain and a lot of fodder for the horses. So I'm living in Germany, but I have a cousin who lives near the Polish border, and he has a friend who has a cousin who lives in Poland. That guy works for Count Potocki, and the other one works for Count Czartoryski. and they've got uh, lots of grain. And it's a matter of business. You know, if the numbers work out, and supply and demand, and you tell this cousin who tells Shemero who tells Bero all the rest of it, I want to buy up every piece of grain in this province now for this, for, for this season. And tell your other friends over there, you know, Mordechai, and Shemordechai, and Kordechai, that they should buy up all the grain over there, because we have a market for it. The market is the king of France, or the king of Sardinia, or the, you know, the Grand Duke of Baden, or something like that. You see? And same thing when it comes to making iron. Here's the, where the iron ore is, and there's a place in Germany where they manufacture it. But I know Ira Friedman has all the uh, uh, contacts with the iron ore people, and Schmerl Friedman has the contact with the German people, and then it's got to be transported over here. And that's how he did it. If you, it's, it's, I mean, it sounds like I'm making fun of it, but it's really remarkable that all these uh, military campaigns were uh, on the supply end run by Jews. That's what they call the Hobshuden. And it was all backstabbed, backstopped by uh, these Polish guys who uh, can deliver the material, deliver the goods. You go to Count Potosik, I have great news, there's a war in Italy. And that means, that means, remember all those extra fields we didn't know what to do with? You'd sell it all top dollar. You see? You know that extra forest we didn't know what to do with? You can now make a mint, because the Queen of England is having a war with the King of France, and the Navy is going to build it it, and the kind of wood you have is a good wood, and so on and so forth. This is how life was done once upon a time. Uh, then, of course, aside from these guys who are serious, uh, wealthy people, you have the natural handlers and hawkers of the flea markets, <laughs> right? Because everywhere in Poland you have a shook market. I call it a flea market because in America you call a flea market. Over there it's a regular market. And uh, uh, we have descriptions. That, uh, I mean, the towns where your parents, grandparents, great grandparents came from had markets once upon a time. And before the Russians shut up and messed everything up, there's a new book about it. Actually, uh, in the old Poland, it was something along the lines of a free market, and therefore, everybody's hocking and huddling all the time. How do you make a living? The average Jew, what he does is, he says, what's, what's for sale? He says, I heard there's beeswax over here. You can sell it there in a problem. Right. Then he goes over there meanwhile he finds out there's extra ladies skirts he brings back over here. Then he finds that there's this hosiery and you sell it over here. And then a week later you find, you know, there's pig bristles and you sell it over here because there's some people that want that. And then you find it, you, you understand those are never one thing all the time. And every family, I mean let's put it this way, this is the origin of the famous joke we all heard, you know, Nishkeret of Shabbos, because one long ago, if you went to Poland, whether they should or they shouldn't, as soon as they got into the shoal, you know, everybody's saying. I guess I saw this. We could do this, that, and the other. You know, and you're not supposed to do a shabbos. What happened on uh, shabbos? That's how life was lived, and it was fairly prosperous. That's the point I want to get across. If not for invasions and wars and stuff like that, it kind of worked. You know, you know, some people have hand to mouth, some people do this and the other. But the uh, you know um, the the country was full of resources. And the food was there, and the uh, stuff to buy and sell was there, and that's how a lot of people made their, uh, their living. And culturally, uh, the most famous of these is ubiquitous taverns. Okay? Because uh, the, there's actually a book that came in no longer about it. I'll show you the cover. Uh, all the bars are owned by Jews. What do I mean by all the bars are owned by Jews? The bars are always owned by the noblemen. That's a basic monopoly the nobles insist on. Because it's the easy way to make money. It Makes sense to me, right? Uh, what's one of the major sources of revenue for the United States government? Booze. True or not? How did FDR? Here's a question for your uh, thing. How did FDR finance the New Deal? Because they got rid of the prohibition, and then the revenue came in from the booze. Okay, that's what they they found out. So, uh, luck it or not. So, um, when it comes to Poland, one of the, you, know, you got all this vodka because you have all the grain. You can turn it into vodka. Well, the, the nobles, naturally, I like us, we have monopoly on this, no stills, you know, is it, we're the only ones that do it. But I'm not gonna do it, I'm gonna get somebody to do it. He's not gonna get a Pole or a Ukraine to do it, they'll drink up all the goods. Jews don't drink. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but the culture was, the Polish nobles, also, like, the Jews are not gonna drink up the, the uh, they think if they take a time once in a while, that's not what we're talking about. In Eastern Europe, that's not cold drinking, you know? He says they, Jews uh, you do don't drink, we call it the right of and that And it was a basic part of uh, the, the, the national culture. And uh, anyway, wherever you went throughout Poland, wherever you went, I, can't, I wasn't there, but you know, a lot, a lot of places, a lot of places you went throughout Poland, it's a piece of land, a nobleman of some sort or other is owning it and there's a peasants around there, and there's one bar. But it's not a bar, it's a tavern. There's a tavern in Poland. I'm not, I don't even know what the right word is. Uh, it's because it, it is a bar. It's also 7-Eleven. No, I'm serious. It's also Best Western. I'm, I am serious. It's a post office. Uh, what else? You know, it's like four or five other things. You get it? It's a restaurant. OK. Now, <laughs> an American would like to go in there uh, if you ever read the descriptions, Jeremy Bentham was once traveling through Poland, the famous uh, English philosopher, and it was the middle of winter, and he stepped inside the bar, woo! He said, I'll sleep, I'll sleep with the coach, you know, I'll take, I'll take my uh, uh, chances with the wind. But uh, if you have a strong uh, nose and a strong stomach, that's how life was lived once upon a time. Wherever you go throughout Poland, is not you? Right I'll show you a movie in a minute. You'll see it on the Polish movie. movie. Okay? Um, the, the uh, look at that, these are Polish paintings. Who's playing music? That's another a place it is. This. It's also a swing, a swing show, you know what I mean? No, I'm, I'm, I mean it, I'm serious. They don't have a jukebox, they have a Jew. <laughs> I, know, I know you're laughing, I know it's funny, and, and I said it for that reason, but it's actually true. So here are the Poles, right? And he's actually dressed fairly nice, so it's most likely a Sunday coming home from church, right, or maybe a Hasada. I'm serious, it might be a Polish wedding and what you do at the wedding is afterwards you come into the place over here and you order rounds and all the rest of it and he is making the money and giving such and such a percent to the nobleman. You get it? Well obviously he's trying to squeeze as much out of him as he can and that's how life was lived for thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews. This is where it comes to because all these Jews when they came to Poland encountered for the first time in Jewish history booze. am I right or am I wrong? In Mediterranean countries, you have wine and no whiskey. In the Talmud times, in the Bible times, you have wine and beer, beer from, from dates. Um, what do the Jews know in their history up to before the 1500s? Brandy, cognac, it's all from wine, you understand? Maybe removed things like that, I don't know. Uh, real liquor, they encounter in Poland. That's the encounter in Poland. And not only encounter in Poland, they sell it. So it used to be that Mechira's chametz on Pesach was not so difficult but when you came to, because you just made sure, like many of you do, to get rid of all your chametz by Pesach time, more or less. You know, an intelligent, uh Acaris habayis can figure out how to do that, uh, but not if your whole stock is uh, barrels of booze. You know, what do you do with that? They really had to come up with the whole idea of Mechira and you're not transferring it, and not moving it, but anyway, the first thing they tried to do in 1500s 1500 so was to see if you could make an argument, Al Pidin, that whiskey is not hummus. I know there were rabbis that did that, but the Ashkenazic sensibility didn't feel They felt like a guilty conscience, that's cheating. It's interesting, you know, you see from here what the religious conscience is. But selling it through, uh, like we do, that they felt OK with, uh, those that did. Um, see, by the way, this is, let's go to the next one. This is from a book by Professor Glenn Dinner, came out long ago, called Yonkel's Tavern, in which he, is a whole study of what I'm just talking about over here, and I know what he's talking about. I mean, he says over here, Yonkel's Tavern is a very famous scene in Polish literature, uh, as I'll show you in a minute. The most famous, or one of the most famous, I'm not an expert in Polish literature, I'm not, uh, Professor Shapiro might be, he says, uh, but uh, Mickiewicz you know, just like a, what shall I say, like a Shakespeare almost, a poem and in the 1800s, a non-Jew, uh, one of the most famous, there are statues of him everywhere, and his most famous epic poem is Pontadius, you know, about Lord Thaddeus. It's a whole uh, business, they made a movie of it, and uh, it's extremely well-known, and one of the places things happen, as I'll show you in a minute, because they made a movie 20 years ago in Poland, uh, Pontadius, uh, one of the places things happen is in the Uncle's tavern, I mean, the local Jew who actually is portrayed as you'll see in a sympathetic way. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll show you something in a second. There's a a long story that takes place among these noblemen in 1811, 1812 when they're already under Russia and they're hoping Napoleon will show up and liberate them and meanwhile two families are fighting like crazy over a certain castle as the Polish noble families do and they're coming to blows and meanwhile there's a romance in there and all the rest of it and You'll see in a second. Um, these guys gather around in a bar. Cause that, what do you do in the countryside? You know, that's that's the place. That's the Cracker Bell. Get in a bar, and they're shooting the bull about Napoleon and the French and this and that and the other. And the Jews are serving and they're playing. The, you know, the, it's a Jewish place. Um, you, you, I found it online. You see, you you would have seen. Uh, that they're all doing, their plotting and they're talking about Napoleon and throwing over the Russians and, and the Jews all around and at each, every point he says, give me more beer and give me more this and let's play a, a tune and the Jews that ones who play the fiddle and the, and the, uh, you know, the instruments as well, uh, so they provide local music, so let's put it this way, if it's, <laughs> if it's a church wedding, so yeah, of course you have the wedding in the church, you have all the music over right there, then they come to have the, the, the party in the tavern, and the Jew will say, I'll give you, a, you know, one round for free. And they play the music, and everybody's dancing. These are koyim dancing koyishim music. You understand? The Jews are playing it. I want to be clear about that, right? And that means the Jews hear all the cracker barrel politics. You know, uh, there are no secrets for them that they don't, that they don't know. They're they're the musicians of choice at the, uh, uh, at the rural uh, Gentile weddings and things like that. Uh, uh, at the end of the novel, or the play, uh, poem actually, you know. Uh, the, one of the heroines, Polish girl, uh, you know, like a little uh, stickle princess, not a, a noble person, she goes to young girl, young kill, you know, and she says, will you play the, the Polish dance? He said, my hands don't work anymore. He said, nobody plays like you, and at the end he does, and that's how they all dance away into their memories and things like that. Uh, in which case, what does it tell you? Uh, the author was not Jewish, I'll say it again, he was a Novartiker. Okay, but he wasn't Jewish and he's from the Arctic. And And, uh, but he knows what life was like at that time and the Jew is part of the scenery, okay? Now, the Jew is not an actor. He's part of the furniture, you see? Uh, so it's a little bit like, you see, the Negro servants in the old White House, but not exactly, you see, but not exactly because you see the Jews are their own culture. They're of service to the Poles but to kind of get out of the way and let the poles do all the actions. The Jews don't fight the wars, they don't plot the plots, they don't dream about you know kicking out the Russians. But they're there. So I'm simply sharing this all with you to say that once upon a time. It was part of the warp and the woof. Um, is the other is the other movie also not working? The next one should work. This, this one's blank on that screen too. Okay, well let's, well, well we'll try it. I even I even found a very recent movie which is, uh, which I wouldn't recommend you seeing because you have a strong stomach, uh, called Volin, where where Shochman is from. And it's a, I'll talk about this uh, later in the next week. In the Second World War, at one point in eastern Poland, which is kind of Ukrainian, Poles and Ukrainians lived there, uh, there was a, a series of massacres of the Poles by the Ukrainians in uh, vicious ways, I mean, you're stabbing eyeballs out and ripping children in half and things like that. Yeah, really, I'm serious. Not Jews, the Ukrainians, the Poles. And uh, the Poles made a movie about this recently. And, uh, and the reason is because the Ukrainians and the Poles, as we'll see in a minute, always had a lot of bad relationships. Even a movie talking about 1939 is still a Jewish bartender. It's still at the uncle's tavern, so to speak. The guy doesn't have a, a beard it anymore. It's, a, you know, it's a, this is a very recent Polish movie, like last year understand yeah that's right and um uh, you know they're, they're, the ukrainians are plotting to overthrow poland and this and that and, the other, and, and they're ordering the drinks from the jew you know they're they they're, they're bargaining with them for the price of the booze and all the rest of it until the germans show up and they shoot yeah. him. which means that what i just described to you lasted until the holocaust when the holocaust came i'm thinking everything came to an end you know that the Germans just killed everybody but all the way up to that time this phenomenon that i'm talking about was all over the place in places place like Poland, Europe, even though people try, governments tried to, uh, tried to suppress it. And all, but as I say again, all these scenes we're looking at Jews in the countryside, which is the majority in the cities, the burghers, the city people, and the clergy had more of a say. Yeah, this is the priest who's trying to get, he's not really a priest, trying to get everybody to revolt. There's the owner of the tavern he's trying to get him to say "Napoleon's coming. we're going to kick out the Russians Napoleon. They're talking treason, you understand? The Jews just the furniture. Is the players. <laughs> There's the uncle who, who figures, hey, we're going to have a war. To stop there. Yeah. We'll stop in a second. That was one. Are you able to get any of the others? Yeah, here the guys try to heat everybody up and said, let's go have a fight with the other noble family and kill them. You know, all these people are little nobles, nobeloch, you know, little, you know. He's the agitator. They're getting their anger up. These are all nobles at the local bar in front of it. See how they're trying to he- heat everybody up to join a, a, an expedition. Look at the here comes the Jew. The voice of common sense. Napoleon's not coming till later anyway. See that? No, but he doesn't bother him. That's enough, yeah. So, wait, look, look at the, the Jew in, in the village, so to speak, right? Uh, now, he has an opinion, and by the way, he's right. For the end, you know, the Russians are gonna win. Yeah. But, uh, he's part of the scenery. And by the way, the guy says just what Bill Sachs said. He said, you coward, shut up, that's not for Jews. I get that. Yeah, right, well, whatever. Yeah, you know, whatever. But, uh, who, who's the real fools? You know, the nobles or the Jew? He's standing the, in the, in the, by the end of the story. Do you have the next one? This is at the wedding. She's going to ask him, will you play? He's the only one. This is a Polish dance of the nobles. (coughs) See <coughs> so he has a reputation of being the only good, what, what is it called? Is Yeah, dulcimer, yeah. yeah. So at the, at the classic Polish noble dance, who's, who's, who's the band? Nossi Grosz. You <laughs> understand? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's enough. Yeah, you know, it goes on and on. But you, 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 again, you see the point. Now, uh, some people said Minsky is idealizing and all that. That's a whole Machlokas in Polish uh, literature. But nevertheless, it's uh, you know, look at that. Now, does the next one work? Nineteen thirty-nine. Is it? The Ukrainians? It's a Jewish barkeeper again? Tavern keeper. They're complaining about the polls. (laughs) They're bargaining over the price of booze. See the These Ukrainians plotting against Poland. Приїхав до нас are хотів служити you. А от за це його до нас. Насилля. Translator do a good job. So the Jewish barkeeper has just, see a lot and keep his mouth shut. 1939 the Jews still part of the furniture. By the way, that could be your uncle, your great uncle or something like that. That's my point, until the next one when the Germans show up. they her taking a Jewish communist and hanging her. She was the communist teacher that was sent by Stalin. This is what the Germans did when they showed up everywhere in Eastern Europe. Wait a minute. He knows, and and he feels bad about the bartender, but they tell him, they give him away. (laughs) That was the end of the Jewish bartender, because the end of all the Jews in in Eastern Europe. So that's what I mean when I say the Jews are part of the countryside part. You you ran into them everywhere. That's my point. Okay? Now, uh, even in urban settings, the Jews, uh, well, let, let me put it this way. Everything I've been talking about Jews in the countryside, which is the majority in the cities, you had the clergy and the burghers had more of a say, and there were pogroms and things like that from time to time, it was worse. Uh, I remember in Vilna, there's a shul, main shul, where after the fifth or sixth hakafah on a Torah, story, they sat down and they did something like or something like that. It wasn't because they're them, but because they commemorated that once the Jesuits broke in with a bunch of college students and killed people. In the sixth Hakafah, back in the 1600s, that became like a custom. You know, so he had those kinds of things uh, because in urban areas, they, they were, there was a larger concentration. But even there, the Jews could appeal to the magnate who owned the city. <laughs> in Poland, most of the cities were owned by a guy, so you could talk to the guy who owned the place and say, "Prince so and so, Count so and so, you know, and we need law and order over here for things to do." Uh, Mayor Balaban, a famous historian, has all these. Uh, uh, records that he found where you know, the polls say the Jews can't move to Park Heights. And the Jews move to Park Heights anyway. You know? And the Jews can't buy houses in uh, Forest Park. And they buy houses in Forest Park anyway because they get the magnate and the noble on their side. The bottom line is that the nobles provided effective protection in return for effective economic benefit to, to the nobles. From the point of view of the nobles, the Jews are one of their assets, like their animals, an intelligent steward who takes care of productive animals. You don't let them get away. This is from, uh, I did this years ago from the famous Polish novel about the Khmelnytsky massacres with fire and sword, we see the, the, a, a, a magnate, one of the biggest ones, uh, Jeremiah uh, Yermia, uh, Vishnevetsky, in the 1640s, who is fighting against the Cossacks who have risen up against him, and uh, they try to uh, flatter him and get him off the guard, but he's not falling for it. But the first thing you'll see he says is like this, let's get the women and the Jews out of here. of a gun. These are, the, 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 these are the, um, okay, look for him. See, the magnate, he's not interested in what the Chmelnitski has to say to him. And he says, kill, kill the guys. Even though there were the envoys. He says, kill them. And they say, how can you kill the envoys? He says, I can do it. <laughs> This guy was the best friend of the Jews in the Kazakh wars. And the, the Jewish sources have it. Now wait a second. Hold him for a second. Bill's amazing. Now he takes counsel. Every magnate is like a little king. He has his own counselors. Watch this. One minute. See, so he, so he calls his lieutenant. Oh, yes. One second. <laughs> In one second, take 300 men. Let's go, my wife, the nobles, and the Jews to Zamosh. Because he's saving his animals. <laughs> you understand? There's a classic case over here. OK. Uh, I feel bad for Bill, so you. you we're, we're, we're done. Now, uh, yeah, I, 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 believe me. Um, same, by the way, the same thing happened. And many people know about the khmelnytsky massacres of 1640s. Same thing happened in the 1760s to the Heidemats. Uh, same thing, where the Ukrainians rose, and they went crazy, and uh, uh, they killed, this is, you know, why is Nachlan Breslau buried in Uman? Uh, because the Jews of Uman had been, shortly before his death, exterminated by the Kazakhs. You understand? Because they came over here. Here, look at this. The massacre of Uman in 1768, the Poles and the Ukrainian Uniates, the Kazakhs in a town of so-and-so, well-fortified town, made one of the primary targets of the Kazakh movement, and a siege planned planned in advance, a guy named Gonta was accused of wiping out the whole Jewish community beforehand. And uh, anyway, they came there and they killed everybody. And uh, from Besselberg lived not far away, and he said he wanted to be buried there in Uman, which is why everybody goes there now. So that's a place where the Ukrainians, like 100 years after Khmelnytsky did another Khmelnytsky and they came to this town uh, and they just lost it. They killed everybody in horrible ways. I, I don't know how many thousands of Jews there's even, believe it or not, an epic poem of the Ukrainians by a guy named Shevchenko, in which he talks about all this. And the hero, or the protagonist says, we came to this town, we just killed her, we became animals. We don't even know what happened to us. You get it? So this is the problem. What happened over here? The nobles send an army and wipe them out. So once again, the Jews are always depending on these princes and these nobles. That's how it goes. Um, we would prefer a narrative in which every Jew had a 22, but that wasn't realistic. You know, you'd say, why uh, did the Jews arm themselves? They couldn't fight against it. They had to go on the no- depend on the noble armies. There were groups like the Shomrim and the JDL, believe it or not. There really were. There was a Jewish militia in a lot of places, all the rest of it. And shoals used to be built like fortresses out of wood, though, but fort- that's why you have all these famous shuls of Simchas Torah where they can use the gunpowder that's stored at the bottom of the shoal for hakafas. Uh, because that was standard in uh, Poland, and once upon a time, if you ever go to Beitats so some of you know what I'm talking about, they have these models of these old, large, beautiful shows that once existed. They're fortresses, okay? But it's only fortresses against a local thing. Not when an army comes. But these can only be temporary expedients. You, you know, you, you need like the next guy, Prince Jeremy. He's got an army. <laughs> he was a magnate years before he had an army, so he could he could protect you as an army. You can't do without an army. One more piece of the pie, and that's religious toleration. This was a delicate issue in polish lithuanian politics, religious toleration, the, uh, because the Protestant Reformation, believe it or not, made a lot of converts in Poland. This is interesting in certain parts of Poland. Uh, the Jesuits, uh, determinedly and successfully, over a long, long period of time, converted most of the Protestant nobles, well, not all, uh, through a key-roof program, because the Jesuits are famous for the justifies to me. They're very good at that. Um, not through violence. So you didn't have in Poland burning of heretics or anything like that. Uh, it's, it's interesting, a Spanish-Portuguese mentality is foreign to Poland and all that's good for the Jews. Just wasn't part of the way they operated, that you uh, shaked and burned people for having a different religious belief. Um, Kiruv though was always there, No, they, they always want to convert the Jew. In the old kingdom of Poland, that I'm talking about, if a Jew con- I can't believe it. If a Jew converted, he immediately became a nobleman. That was incentive. Get it? That's a- no, that's a-, that's a good deal. You see, it's a good deal. It's uh, a, <laughs> you know, you know. The- I don't want to you the joke. Anyway, uh, no time for that. The Jesuit co- Counter Reformation, which is the Catholic uh, Reformation, expended most of its energy on the Protestants and on the Greek Orthodox, trying to convert them to Catholic. This left the Jews rather untouched. You know, not totally, but rather untouched. It was a million times better than the other Catholic countries of Europe at that time. Uh, Austria, Italy, uh, Spain, Portugal, my goodness, it was a terrible. And finally, you had the baby boom. With all this countryside stuff that I'm talking about, the Jews, nobody knows exactly why, but Poland is the only place where the Jews had a baby boom, a significant expansion of the population, in the 1500s, in the 1600s, in the 1700s, and in the 1800s. Okay, Until it got to a point where Polish Jewry, now I mean Eastern European Jewry because when I say Poland, once again, I'm talking about Lithuania, uh, 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 Ukraine, uh, Belarus, uh, you know, all those two, Poland itself, Galicia, uh, but it, taken it as a whole, part they, of There's the only Jewish community I know of in history of the diaspora that I know of uh, where you had a, sig- a significant population expansion. In Germany, you had the same number of Germans generation after generation, Italy, Spain, this and the other, generation after generation. Sometimes there's a little immigration in there. Poland, from their own efforts, uh, grew and grew. So something must have worked over there. And uh, that's why everybody here comes from Poland, from Eastern Europe. Because at one time or another, when it comes to the 1800s, they started leaving, whether they went to America or South Africa or to England or wherever they went, uh, this, they had so many Jews as a surplus to, to, to send out, and still have plenty of people left back in there. It's the only community like that. So with all the crazy stuff that I'm sharing with you tonight, it must have worked somehow or other because the Jews took off. OK? Uh, now to politics. The Jews are an important part of Poland starting 1500s. Poland fell apart around the late 1700s. So the, the good years of Poland before it fell apart about two or 300 years. From 1500 to 1648, things were great for the Jews and the Poles. Um, that's what I was talking about. But there were structural problems in the House that, could, that were not being seen to, and that's never a wise policy for a homeowner if you have leaks. And first of all, you have the weak central government with the liberum veto, as they call it. By the time you get to the late 1600s, 1500s, they pa- the nobles pass a law, the magnates especially. No law can get passed in Congress unless it's unanimous. <laughs> right? And how, that's right, exactly. Liberum veto. Anybody can say I veto it, you know, free veto. Right? So, How's, how's that going to work? Um, this made sure, of course, that you'll never pass a law that David Cass doesn't like. Right? That's the idea behind it. You know, depend me. This made sure that the kingdom had the, all the disadvantages of a monarchy and all the disadvantages of a republic, not the advantages. There was no strong executive, so structurally you have a problem. Who can run the government? Who fights the wars? Who makes sure that there's uh, enough money in the treasury and all that? None of that. There's no strong military in the wealthiest country in Europe. That's real dumb. This guy was a great hero, King Stefan Batory. He beat the Russians, he beat the others. He's always fighting on the cheap like George Washington. Why? He was the king of the richest country in the world, or richest country in Europe. Shouldn't have been like that. You understand? But they always uh, chinched him out and nobody would give any money and he was always living hand to foot. And uh, this is this, this how it went. Uh, the nobles could not could not help but put themselves first, ahead of their country. If there was to be an advantage, if it was to be an advantage, they would make a deal with a foreign country against the interests of Poland. That's just who they were. It happened over and over again. There were long interregnums between kings. That was a big problem. This happened disastrously in 1648 when the Cossacks rose up, to the surprise of the Poles. The king died at that very moment. It took them—I don't know how many months, six, eight months—to elect a new king. Till then, Poland shut down, so the Kazakhs can run around crazy and kill everybody. And Poland couldn't get an army together to fight it, except these local magnates, like you saw in the picture before. You know, Prince Jeremy fought with his own army. Foreign princes always tried to get the Polish throne for their own good. In other words, I forgot to tell you this: uh, part of the deal was is elective monarchy. Every time the king dies, you have to elect a new one. Okay, Where is that going in terms of bribery? Where is that going in terms of foreigners who want to become king of Poland for their own sake? right Not for patriotic Polish uh, purposes. Uh, for the aggrandized, not for the good of the country. The nobility, the and the magnates, here's another problem. We're too cruel to the Ukrainians on both the religious as well as the economic and political level. So in the Eastern Poland with the Ukrainians, like you saw in the bars, you know, they, they persecuted the churches, they beat up the people, they, they, they uh, raped the women, they did all kind of bad things. And that means you have a giant population that's seething with discontent. It's never too smart. Uh, in 1648, therefore, they erupted a series of disasters, which the kingdom should have been ready for but wasn't, and it lasted 30 years. 30 years. You had a Kazakh uprising, like we saw before, I don't know if you can know have the picture of it, but I, I, it's late, so I won't uh, throw you the movies. There was a big Kazakh uprising, which destroyed several Polish armies. Then uh, there was a lot of atrocities on both sides. In other words, the Kazakhs wiped out and, and nailed the crosses over the, the Poles when they found him, and vice versa. Okay? This Prince Jeremy became famous because he came, if he came to a village, here's a Swedish invasion. That's another thing. We came to a village where we saw Tolleson's fell, and he said, they killed the Jews, wipe out the village. You understand? Now, that's how it was savage. Um, so the, then Sweden decided to invade Sweden, was a major power at that time. And look at this huge army invading Poland out of nowhere. And a Polish historian I saw the other day said that the Swedes did more damage to Poland than the Germans did in World War II, right? So it's just unbelievable. Then the Russians invaded, because why not? Then the Turks invaded, because why not in the 1670s. Here's the Ottoman Turkish army, look at that. Going to the famous fortress of Kamenitz Podolski, which was the uh, you know the the uh, frontier bastion of Poland against the Turks. Um, the I mean hundreds. Of, then you have all these uh, atrocities. Here's the Turks in a uh, very famous. This is, this is the Polish gone with the wind. You know it's a three part. No serious, Sienkiewicz. You, you know, but the point is he takes the uh, the Barbara, the, the the girl who thought that he was a, a friend of the Poles, and he shacks the father in front of her. And, uh, and, and I forget what he does to her or something like that, and you know, it leaves her dead in the snow. It's, in other words, the Poles went through a lot of junk. You understand? I mean, I just told you, it's like, it's like 10 plagues, you see? Um, in the process, okay, Poland loses some peripheral territory. Sweden took this province, Russia took that part. But after all the death and suffering, uh, later in the uh, 1600s, after all the death and suffering, there was recovery and renewal. Because finally, Poland got a normal king, a uh, very great king, John Sobieski, one of the great uh, heroes of Europe and of Pol- Poland militarily. And uh, he was a PhD, that's right. So he was a great general, and he also had an advanced from university. You don't find that too often anywhere, particularly in Poland. And, uh, uh, and he was a member of the Schlacht, of course. Here again is a very famous, uh, you can see. So, yeah. You can, you can uh, turn the sound off. We just showed the thing. He's a, it's after a hero has blown himself up in a fortress. So he's saying they're, they're, they're making a whole speech. And Sobieski, the great general, is going to come in. And he's going to, you'll see in a second. Here you go. And he said, enough for speeches. Let's pull out the swords. And he, the sword of the guy who broke his own sword when he, when he blew up the fortress, not to surrender to the Turks. holds it up as a... Symbol, you know, it was a great friend of the Jews, because the intelligent kings valued the Jews. So I'm asking, okay. For God, Mr. Wolodyjowski, larum krajom, wojna, nieprzyjaciel w granicach a ty się nie zgrywasz. Szabli nie chwytasz, na koń nie siadasz. Co się z tobą stało, żołnierzu? Za liść swej dawnej zapomniał cnoty, że nas samych w żalu jeno i trwodze zostawiasz. Kto nieprzyjacielowi opór stawi? Kto go obwojować będzie? Kto podniesie upadłe serca nasze? Anyway, see, he has a whole thing and they all pull out their swords. Um, renewal and recovery for the Jews. After all the terrible things that happened. that we covered years ago, the horrible suffering of the Jews, life moved on. In other words, it was a 30, bad 30, 40 years to live. 1648, uh, about 30 years to live in. And then it was over, so to, so to speak. Um, and the other ethnic groups left Poland. They said, this place is crazy. So the Jews are the only ones left. So they have all the stores. They have all the uh, money lending operations. They have all the sort of thing under the nobles. You see? So the Jews have monopoly in economic things. This is the law of unintended consequences. Sobieski was a great man, was prevented from carrying out the necessary reforms during his reign. He helped the Jews a lot. When he died at the end of the century, Poland, always rich in resources, was poor in intelligent statecraft. Its nobles were selfish and irresponsible. And in the next century, which I'll do next time, they would run the resource-rich but politically backwards kingdom into the ground. So the irony of this is, I leave you tonight with the message, that this very group of irresponsible noblemen and noblewomen were the best friends of the Jews, for better or worse. That's the crazy quote history of the Jews when you get to Poland. Under this Republic of Noblemen, the Jews developed the largest and freest Jewish community anywhere. When I say free, I mean the Jews were more free to be as Jewish as they wished. And the Jews took full advantage of this. No wonder the Jews called it Polin. This is the place we rest. The problem was that this support for the Jews was confined to the nobles, as long as they were the only ones who counted well and good. But a day would come when the other 90% of the population would have a say in the nation's governance. How would this 90% of the react to the presence of such a large and noticeable non-Polish minority group scattered throughout the land? often controlling significant parts of the economy? This is a very uncomfortable question, as we will see. But while it lasted, right, Poland was better uh, than just about anywhere else. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbydovecats.com.